The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the director, Lee Silverman. And, Leah, before we get started, I just want to go through some of your credits. I'm very impressed that in the past half dozen years or so, you've worked at, among other places, I'm just naming a few, Second Stage, The Women's Project, Playwrights Horizons, Manhattan Theater Club, on Broadway at the Longacre Theater, uh, the Public Theater. You've worked in the West End of London. You've worked in uh, Los Angeles at the Geffen Theater, the Cleveland Playhouse, the Actors Theater of Louisville. And I'm just hitting a few of them. Lee Silverman, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. As I look through your credits... It strikes me you have a current show running now called Bebo Brinker Chronicles. You've got one coming up very soon from up here of Equal Measure also coming up. Just closed, Hunting and Gathering, recently Yellow Face, Blue Door, The Treatment, Well. Every one of these shows is a new work, and you've been working with living playwrights. Is that part of what you want to do, or is it, did it just happen that way? Oh, you know, I working with playwrights for me is the whole reason to do theater. I mean, I was really interested always in the collaboration between directors and playwrights and um, how to take someone's ideas and give them the opportunity to see what they have, to offer alternative ways to say, okay, let's together make this thing. And I think it's it's truly for me um, that energy that's created between director and writer um, as in the development of something is such an intense and exciting and... Um, really inspirational for me collaboration I mean I get I just feel um, it is uh, truly I think the reason to do theater for me I guess that could be indicated by your education you went to Carnegie Mellon got dual degrees in playwriting and directing I guess yeah even at that age, you recognized the collaboration. You know, I was really interested in working with playwrights, and there was no opportunity the way the curriculum was set up to actually work with playwrights. And so I applied to the playwriting program, which now looking back, I think, God, where did I get the chutzpah for that? But um, <laughs> I applied to the to the playwriting program and uh, got in. And so I spent a couple of years being both a director and a playwright. And I learned more about directing as a playwright, you know, what makes a good play, plot, character, revelation. Um, I learned how to talk to playwrights. I learned what it means to put yourself out there in that way. I mean, I think that it was uh, it, it was an incredible opportunity, and, and um, I feel so lucky that somehow I managed to to figure out how to do both at that time. So, Did you ever consider a third degree in acting? <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's how I got into directing is because I was, uh, I you know, as a kid, I did tons of acting, and I did some summer theater program in which I had a teacher, thankfully, tell me that I was terrible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said, but you're smart. You should look into directing. And, you know, she gave me these Ibsen and Chekhov and Shaw, and she said, you know, work with me for the summer. Help me work with all the other actors. And it was great. She changed my life. It's was rather, rather fortuitous that the teacher recognized uh, that, didn't you? I was so lucky. Well, first, I was so lucky that she got me out of acting, because <laughs> thank God. But um, but it was great. You know, she, um, this, sh- she was incredible. And I was 16 years old. And from that moment, I thought, oh, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. Well, let's talk a little about the most current project, the Bebo Brinker Chronicles, which is running at 37 Arts here in New York. You had done the show originally off-off-Broadway, and it moved to a commercial run. How collaborative was the process in creating that? It is a new work, like so many. Um, What point did you join the project? Linda Chapman and Kate Ryan, the 
playwrights had these were favorite books of theirs. There, this this play is based on a series of very um, famous favorite cult books of the fifties, um, written by a woman named Ann Bannon. And um, they, Linda and Kate, were big fans of the books, and they had started to work on this adaptation. And they said, you know, come over, we're going to cook you dinner, and we're going to ply you with wine, and we're going to basically <laughs> convince you exactly <laughs> that you should direct this play. And at the time, they were it was it, it was huge. I mean, it was three acts, it was thirty characters, it was this epic epic because they really had just looked at the whole scope of the story. And over a number of years and dinners and bottles of wine, we kind of figured out, okay, what is the story here? What is the story? Who are the characters that we're going to follow? And in what way? And how? And what? what is the theme of the piece? How do you hook into it? Why is it important? Why is it important to take these books and put it on stage? And it was a really interesting process because I think when Anne wrote these books, they weren't written to be pulp. They were written to be fiction. And they're written in a very earnest, sweet tone. And yet they're sort of salacious and sexy and pulpy and all of the things. I mean, she was she was really trying to, I think, tell a very real story mixed in with this sort of noirish kind of theme. And so figuring out what the tone of the show was going to be was really tricky because we didn't want it to be. I felt very strongly that these are characters that um, generations of women have loved, and I didn't want to send them up. I didn't want to make fun of them. I didn't want it to be a show where there was, you know, crazy wigs and costumes and rip-away things, and it felt to me like it wanted to embrace and pay tribute to the tone that Anne had in her book. So... Um, it was a long process of kind of figuring out what that tone was. We got incredibly lucky. We have a genius cast of actors, um, Marin Ireland and David Greenspan and Anna Dornfeld and Jen Colella, who's playing the, the title role of the show, and Bill Dawes and Carolyn Baumler, who plays three different parts in the play. She plays what she calls the whole spectrum from uh, flirt to tart. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, and then how to embrace the, the comedy and the humor um, as you look at a story like this through our 2008 perspective. Um, so it was a very tricky kind of navigation, and it was great to work with Linda and Kate. Um, and Anne, of course, has been a huge supporter of the show and has come and seen it multiple times, which has been a real pleasure for us. Well, I think we sort of jumped ahead a little bit. You, you used the wonderful phrases in, in close to each other. You said it's famous, and you said cult, which yes. can sometimes <laughs> be mutually exclusive. But we sh- and we're, we're saying pulp, but can you tell talk a little bit about the original books and then what it was you ultimately decided to bring out from them on stage. The first of the the series of books, there are five books in the Bebo Brinker series. The first one is called Odd Girl Out, and it was the second best-selling paperback of 1952. And when Anne set out to write that book, she was not particularly looking to write the kind of sexy, pulp, book that we think of when we think of some of the more famous pulp, you know, like a sorority sisters or a women's barracks or something like that. She was really setting out to write um, a a very uh, important, I think, fiction book. In an era when certainly the phrase lesbian fiction would not have come up in everyday conversation. Exactly. Exactly. And she brought it to an editor and he said, you know, you should sort of focus on these two women. This is really where the story is. And he took her 600 page manuscript and edited it down to 300 pages or something. And she worked very closely with this editor and they um, it became, I think, and I think part of the reason why these books are evergreen in a way is because it isn't there. It, there are elements of the book that are incredibly um, 
titillating, but there are also, there's a real story there. And I think that that is what makes these books hold up in a different way and actually make them ripe for an adaptation to the stage. But yesterday's pulp, as well as yesterday's drama, is often today's camp. So so talk a little more about how you, you approached it for today. Well, we felt like sending it up, making it camp, was in a certain way doing a real disservice to the story and to these characters. That no, we actually tried desperately to stay away from additional commentary. And then instead to, in a certain way, play it as straight as possible. And I think that what is successful, what makes the piece successful and feel like this kind of unusual little gem is that it's so unexpected. It's hilarious and it's raucous and it's sexy, but there's something about it that's deeply sad that's a real story. They're real people. You really care. And I think that's what separates camp from what we're trying to do, which is walk this whole other line, which is that you care about the characters. They do desperate things. They do melodramatic things. They behave in abominable ways, but they're so deeply human. And I think that that is truly what Anne was setting out to do, which was to tell a story about people, young people moving to New York, making friends, messing things up, being crazy, but that ultimately finding themselves. And I think that's the thing that we all really hooked into in terms of trying to figure out the style of the piece. John read a litany of major companies that you've worked with. This show started off off Broadway, very small company. How did the transfer come about that from this from this little theater it's now in a commercial run you know it's so funny you work on well I've worked on so many shows and you think oh this is a show that's going to transfer this one's going to transfer god I hope this one has a bigger life and then you work on this tiny little show that you sort of imagine no one in the world will see and it caused such a sensation in a way that I just um, would never have anticipated and it was so thrilling really Um, the whole run um really sold out before we even opened. And so there was a lot of excitement around it. And we were in a very small theater. And I think that it's a real testament to the books that this tiny play that had basically no marketing and no advertising, um, all of a sudden we had people traveling from all over. We had people coming from Guam. We had people coming from China. It was unbelievable who were flying in to see this tiny little show. I mean, we all got paid like 14 cents to do this play. (laughs) And, you know, I was like bringing props from home because there was nothing. I mean, it was to say bare bones. um, I mean, it was really just a labor of love for everybody. So the fact that it's now having the second life, Harriet Levy, uh, who's a very very exciting and risk-taking producer. Um, she produced Corn Boy. She's producing 39 Steps right now. Um, she's one of the original producers of Stomp. She came in. She, she actually saw our closing show downtown. And she said, as she walked out of the theater that day, she said, I am going to bring this show back. I'm going to do it. And, um, and so we're over at 37 Arts. And um, it's really been um, quite a ride. It's just totally unexpected. Now, you mentioned that Ann Bannon, who wrote the novel, she was yeah. very supportive. And very, talked, very supportive. talked about collaboration. Was she involved in the writing and uh, the, the staging of the show? Not at all. She mm-hmm. just has come in and seen. She saw two readings during our development uh-huh. time, and then she showed up for our opening weekend downtown and came again um, this time. She's done a number of talkbacks. She's done a huge amount of kind of publicity for the show, but she, 
she really wasn't involved in the this particular aspect of the creation. And I will also just say that another woman who's been very um, influential at this moment has been Lily Tomlin, who came on board as one of our producers as well. And, um, you know, part of the reason I'm in theater, I think, is because I saw her one-person show. So to be with her and sitting in a room with her, you know, is kind of stunning. What was Ann Bannon's uh, reaction when she saw her characters live on stage now, from the page to the stage, so to speak? She's been nothing but generous and thrilled. I think she feels like we somehow managed to excavate around inside her brain <laughs> and pull out these people. Well, among the other things that uh, that come up uh, when, when I look through various uh, articles about you is the word multitasking. <sighs> you have to do many things at once, including bringing props from home and right. you know, staging shows. <laughs> was that something which you had envisioned when you uh, were in school, that you'd be doing so much, that you'd be so involved? And it's, it's a little bit different than Broadway, because Broadway, certainly you have people who, who do those things. Sure. I mean, I, I feel very lucky that I'm actually able to to work on many levels and kind of at the same time. Uh Um, I think the work informs the work. I think um, being able to multitask, as you say, is one of the critical skills of being a director because you have to all the time be thinking on a micro, micro level, moment to moment work, and at the same time macro, big picture, all the time. What's this going to look like? How's this going to feel inside the whole container of a play? You have to be able to talk to one actor very specifically. You need to be able to talk to a group of them at a time. You need to be able to talk to producers, designers, everyone on your team. I think that um, you have to constantly be immersed and have total perspective. And that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get to do it on multiple projects at any one time, it is so informative because you literally have to step out of part of your brain and go into another. I mean, yesterday I had this day where I was um, doing a rehearsal over at 37 Arts in the morning. And then I had we had our first designer run through over at Manhattan Theater Club. And then I came home and I did a ton of pre-production work for my next project. And I think that it is so I feel so lucky to be in that position because I think whenever you're able to. To walk outside of a project and then be able to come back, you have a whole new perspective. And keeping perspective and keeping um, yourself really open so that you're really receiving all the time exactly what's happening in the room without sort of getting like, oh, you've seen that four times, so you get a little tired of it. I mean, you always have to be eager and open and saying, it's kind of like being five years old all the time. You're saying, do it again, do it again. You are among a minority, but a growing minority of women who have directed on Broadway. Well being the example a couple of seasons back, where it really started off Broadway, then transferred. So in terms now of having experience on Broadway as a director, how is that experience different than what you have been doing the off and off off Broadway work? I mean, in a certain way, the craft is the same. Uh I mean, you're still showing up, you're still leading a room, you're still pushing forward everyone's um, creativity and... um, skill level and you're still building something. So whether it's in a tiny 67-seat theater or it's in a 1,200-seat theater on Broadway, the craft, I think, is the same. I think the thing that changes is the expectations, the pressure, the kind of world around the show is what's different between off-off-Broadway or off-Broadway and Broadway. I think what the goals are are often different depending on what level you're working at. I think it is important Um, on Broadway, you know, the money part of it is always really important. Selling tickets is really important. Getting tourists interested is really important. Things like advertising and marketing play a very different role than when you're doing something in a short, limited run in a very small theater. I think that 
what I mean, what I think is so exciting currently on Broadway certainly is that it was a very big deal it felt like two years ago because I was whatever that was the sixth or seventh woman to ever do a straight play on Broadway which seemed in 2006 kind of shocking and strange um and also the cause for some um you know there was some attention around that and I thought it was really I felt so lucky but also it was it felt really um I couldn't believe it, that that was really what the statistic was. And here we are this year, and there are like six or seven women directing plays on Broadway. And I think that in just two years to see how different that is, is kind of radical. Which is why I said a growing minority. Yes, well, it's really exciting. Now, talking about those various commercial pressures, how does that affect you as a director artistically, or, or does it at all affect you? Oh, sure, you know. That's the joy of being a director. Everything affects <laughs> you, and yet nothing can affect you. Um, you know, I think it's... Um, it's hard, you know. I don't know. It's it's um it's hard. I think you have to be aware of so many things all the time, and um, certainly ticket sales is a big part of that. Um, how an audience is feeling about a show is a big part of that. Being able to really sense how an audience is feeling, how they're going to walk out, are they going to tell their friends? Um, it's a really big part of it. And I think particularly on Broadway, it's like you have a lot of money riding on on the back of those impulses, you know, so you sort of have to be really, really um, diligent about the choices that you make. Well, we'll come back around to your Broadway experience as well, but let's jump back. How did you conceive to want to be a director? So many people who do theater started acting and then shift into other things, and you you reacted so strongly when John asked if you had ever (laughs) trained in acting. Um, Where did you where did you conceive of the desire to direct? I think that uh, it, it was really, for me, I, you know, I was always a theater nerd. I was always doing theater when I was a kid. It was the only thing. I think theater feels more real to me than my real life ever did. Um, and I was doing the summer theater program, as I was saying, when I was 16. I was in Cambridge, England. I was doing a, it was a, like a UCLA study abroad kind of thing. It was an acting program. And I was so lucky because after our first day of everyone doing monologues and then talking about the plays that their monologues were from, this teacher said to me, you know, can you stay after? And and then she said, oh, Lee, you know, you're terrible. And um, <laughs> it was the best thing that she could have said to me. And it was really the beginning of my time sitting on the other side of the table. I spent this whole summer watching my peers practice their monologues and practice their scenes and work with this teacher and I just watched I just watched it all and it was so much more comfortable for me and it was so interesting I read all these plays that I I would never have been exposed to I my it was like it was like all of a sudden the door opened and I could walk through it and and from that time I mean I went back I directed um my first play when I was a senior in high school I went to Carnegie Mellon I um did a summer another summer theater program at Carnegie Mellon and I it was it was really I mean it was like as if I just landed on a track and that was the right one for me and that I just haven't gotten off of thankfully after school then how did you go about getting your first gigs or what were your first gigs really well I did a number of internships at different theaters in New York I did an internship at Circle Repertory Theater back when it was um 
existed. And uh, I had the incredible privilege. I was the PA on a show directed by Norman Renee, uh, starring Julie Harris, written by Timothy Mason. And it, that was a really incredible experience. We rehearsed in the city and then the show premiered out at um, Sag Harbor and then came back in and was at the Lortel. And that was really thrilling. And my whole job was to take care of Julie Harris. And <laughs> oh, it was amazing. And I got to watch Norman Renee work every day. And that was really incredible. And Longtime Companion, um, the movie that he directed, had just come out. And so it was a really Really exciting time. Um, and then I did an internship at the Women's Project, and I did an internship at New York Theatre Workshop. And after I graduated, I moved to New York, and I started working at New York Theatre Workshop. And I was um, like a intern, and then I was the company manager for their summer residencies, and then I answered the phones for a while, and then I worked as a dresser on one of their shows, and then I went and was a uh, there was the year of rent, and I went and worked on the first road company of rent in Boston. And then I came back and I started assisting, and I did a ton of assisting. Um, I assisted Michael Greif a bunch of times. I assisted Doug Hughes six or seven times. I can you explain yeah. what assisting means for people because it can mean different things, frankly, with different directors. But sure. what was your experience? Well, it's interesting. I think some directors. Certainly, there's a a real split about whether um, directors feel like they should do any assisting. You know, is it better to watch or is it better to just always do your own thing? And I think think for me, I really felt like being in a room was so important. Being able to see a process happen, um, to be – to have a very limited amount of responsibility – for the actual outcome, but to go through an entire process with people who are just so spectacular felt to me to be the the uh, absolutely essential to my learning. And, you know, assisting is a lot of just sitting really quietly and focusing all of your attention on what's going on. Assisting is a lot of taking notes for directors. Assisting is a lot of getting inside of a director's head. Assisting is can be um, can include working with understudies, working with replacements. Um, it can include, you know, sitting in on all of the meetings with designers and writers, producers. Um, it can also mean none of that. It can mean just going across the street to get coffee. And I think depending on the assistant that you have, I think depends on kind of what kind of access you're you're granted. Um, mm-hmm. So. It's a very, um, for me, it was a, a really extraordinary time. I was also, I was doing a ton of assisting. I was also directing a lot of my own work um, when I could in um, in small theaters. I did a lot of work at Dixon Place and Rattlestick and stuff at New Dramatists. And I was um, back and forth to Washington where I grew up um, a couple times directing shows there. And I felt like I could really take what I had learned in a room somewhere else and bring it to the work that I was doing in a way that I found really, really extraordinary and um, and helpful, really helpful to me and um, just incredible to see when things worked, when things didn't come to my own decisions about why. It, it was, I, I, for me, it was essential. Well, when, when you were assisting these, these well-known directors, yeah. you were certainly learning by observation, by being there. Of course. Did you also have discussions with them, such as, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Did, did you discuss why they were doing things? Sometimes. Uh-huh. Sometimes. I mean, I think it really, it depends. I mean, because I had the opportunity to assist the same directors mm-hmm. sometimes more than a number of times, I I felt like, um, you know, you could really start to get into it. I mean, it's like any other relationship. It takes a little while, and you build the trust, and you, but, you know, really I think the the thing about being an assistant is that um, it's not so much about your opinion as it is 
kind of being being the biggest supporter of the show that you can. And I think um, being able to get inside very accomplished directors' heads at that time um, was was an, a tremendous opportunity for me. You alluded earlier to the debate about whether directors should ever yeah. assist or not, because to some people it becomes self-fulfilling. You're a great assistant and you don't move up. Was there a singular break for you that got people to start thinking of you as, let's get Lee Silverman to direct this project? Well, I, I kind of reached a point personally where I thought, okay, I'm done assisting. I've really done it. I really know what it is. I really don't want to do it anymore. I really just want to do my own work. And it was kind of in that moment that um, Doug Hughes called me and said, uh Derek Hanson Jones is looking for a new assistant for this production of Wit that's going to happen. It, at that point, it had opened at MCC. It had transferred to Union Square, and Kathy was leaving. Judith Light was going in, and um, Derek needed a new assistant. And I said, you know, I'm really done assisting. I really don't want to assist anymore. And he said, you know, would you just go and meet with Derek? And I had known Derek socially, and he said, you know, we, this would be really good, and we would really, I would really appreciate it. And... I sort of said, oh, I don't know. Let me think about it. And um, and then I went and met with Derek, and it turned out um, that was the last kind of assistantship that I did. And partly why it was the last assistantship was because it was a very critical crisis moment for Derek because Derek was very sick um, at that time. And so working on wit in that moment was um, a tremendous amount of um, emotional and also, uh, it was very it was very difficult that time. And I think I loved the show so much, and I loved Eric so much. And I um, really, as he um, was failing in his health, it became to work on a play like that while someone is so sick. Um, and you know, he was thirty seven years old, and um, it was it was a very important time in my life. And I felt so close to Kathy Chalfon, who was the lead, and of course, and um, so I worked with Derek a little bit. Um, and then Derek went into the hospital, and then I went out to L.A. and worked on the show um, in L.A. with uh, four of the original cast members. We did the production at the Geffen, and um, Derek died the night of our dress rehearsal um, out there, which was um, really horrible and really sad. And then um, a week later, I was in London casting the show for the West End, and it was such—I mean, it's like, how do you— how do you put those emotions together? Like it's, it was so complicated and um, so hard. And, um, you know, I felt like keeping Derek in my heart through that process was, was the key. So what's extraordinary that you ended up directing the West End premiere of Wit at, you were in your 20s. Yeah. Um, even before you had really major credits here in the States. Yeah, I remember writing to my agent, actually, and saying to her um, from London and saying, I just looked at my bio that they're printing, and I seem like I'm a kid. Do you think there's anything else I should add? <laughs> and she wrote back and she said, you are a kid. So there was, you know, I felt like, um, you know, it was a tremendous leap of faith that they took with me Um in being able to direct that show there. And um, it was um, really exciting and really difficult. And um, 
I think like so many things are, the things that are so incredible can also be so complicated and the things that are so lucky can also come at the expense of other things. And um, I feel like I've been incredibly lucky in my career because I've been able to um, work and continue to work. And at the same time, it always is, you know, a difficult, it can be a difficult thing. Working in London, you were working with Kathy Chalfont, who, again, in what was to some a remarkable decision, Kathy Chalfont played the lead. They didn't go out and hire Maggie yeah. Smith or yeah, someone yeah. else. But the rest of the company was an English company. Right. How was you were working in a foreign country with actors who presumably you met only through audition, yes. you'd not seen their work, and you and Kathy were re- hopefully retaining the core of the work. But, but what was the process of taking someone else's direction, some you know, to recreate another actress, and then bring all these new people into it? Oh, it was wild. I have so many stories I could tell you. But the 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 I think the the really quintessential story is that I was meeting with the props person over there and we were talking about the things that we needed, you know, for the production and going through everything. And I kept saying to him, okay, so there's a scene where her feet go up in the stirrups on the table because she's having a gynecological exam. So there are stirrups that get attached to the table. Do you, can you get those for the table? Because the table we had in rehearsal didn't have these stirrups. And he said, oh, right, right, right. Sure, sure. And I could tell that he wasn't quite sure what I was saying. And I, and I, I kept sort of saying, you know, like at a table, like the, the stirrups, like like, I sort of just kept saying the same words over and over. And he's like, right, 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 sure. And the next day he showed up with horse stirrups. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that was like, because I guess the way that they do the gynecological exams in London are a little bit different. <laughs> and he probably never Presumably had not himself. using horses. <laughs> right, <of> exactly. Course, <laughs> but. <laughs> but it was like, it, it felt a little bit like, you know, we all imagine that we're speaking the same language, you know, because we're all speaking English, but it's different. It's a different culture. So, um, you know, we, we had an amazing time, Kathy and I. I mean, she is such a force. And um, we had this was then the second time, of course, we had done the show because we had done it in L.A. And then we, we were doing it in London. And it was um, it was truly a remarkable, remarkable experience. Um, Ed Stoppard, Tom Son, was playing the doctor, Jason, and um, he was quite wonderful. We had a really great, great group um, of actors. And we had a – I mean, it was – incredible to bring that show there at that time also there were a couple of uh, side show was there at that time so Edie Falco was over there and Frank Wood and the side man side man side man yeah so um you know there was like this sense of like um the Americans over there and we felt kind of ostracized and we all sort of stuck to ourselves and it was really uh it was fun I mean it was really really great and uh uh, Kathleen Turner was opening The Graduate at the same time, and there was a lot of excitement around um, her being naked and, you know, things like that. So um, it was it was quite the quite the time. One of your credits that kind of stands out for being different than the others is uh, very early uh, in, in, in uh, this decade, in 2003, Never Gonna Dance, which was a musical. You were the associate director on I that. I was. I worked with Michael on that. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you get involved in that? And why a musical? It doesn't fit into the rest of your... I, You know, I was so curious, and he uh, asked, and I thought, yeah, totally. Um, uh, I... Uh, I I knew so little about that kind of music in that era, and I felt like it was just nothing that I had ever done before. And um, I was really excited to see the inner machinations of a Broadway musical. Um, Jerry Mitchell did the choreography. It was stunning. And um, 
exciting to see a show. Jeffrey Hatcher wrote the book, and it was a inc- really, really exciting group of people that came together to work on that show. And the dancing was just I- extraordinary. I mean, it was extraordinary. Well, that was, or I guess I should say, was that a once-in-a-lifetime experience? In other words, would you consider doing another musical? I would time? love to do a musical. I'm doing a musical next season, actually, at um, MCC, which I'm really excited about. Very different from Never Gonna Dance. Exactly on the opposite end of the spectrum, <laughs> I think. You know, because it's me, so it's dark and macabre and strange and <laughs> amazing. Um, this musical that I'm working on is called Coraline, and it's based on a book by a guy named Neil Gaiman, who people might know from. Um, he wrote the Sandman series and Stardust and Beowulf. He's having a big moment right now. Um, and he wrote this book called Coraline that Stephen Merritt from the Magnetic Fields took and musicalized. And David Greenspan wrote the book. David Greenspan is in it and plays a character called the Other Mother and kind of the grand dame spirit. And um, Jane Howdy Shell is going to play Coraline, the nine-year-old girl. And uh, it's going to be an incredible thing. It's just going to be a wild, wild, interesting, different kind of project. You bring up the name Jane Howdy Show. Of course, you've worked with her before yes, in Well. Yes. So that's kind of a natural segue to go sure. back to the public yeah. theater production of Well and then how that transitioned from public to Broadway. Sure. Well, Well was a collaboration between Lisa Crone and I for five years before it ever saw the light of and, day. And as you said, she was not only the writer, she was also the star, the star of the show. Yes, of course. And she, when Lisa first asked me to work with her on that project, um, we had met at New York Theater Workshop, and she said, oh, you know, I'm, she was doing at that point her solo show, 2.5 Minute Ride, and she was running that show at the public, and she got the TCG grant from uh, to, do, uh, to start working on a new play at Baltimore Center Stage. She said, I'm working on this play, I burned through directors, do you want to work on it with me for a little while? <laughs> it's like, how could I resist? Um, so I said, yes, of course. And we started to work together. And um, five years later, um, after an extensive amount of development, um, we premiered the play at the public. And it was incredible because Lisa is an amazing performer. And it, this was the first time that she was writing a play that had other people in it. And it actually became kind of the joke of the play was that it was a solo show with other people in it. Um, and Jane was one of those other people. She played someone not part of the play, so to speak, but lived kind of outside of the realm of the play and was Lisa's mother sitting in a lazy boy off to the side. And working with Jane, developing that play with her, developing that part with her, watching her for so many years, it was a master class. I mean, she is extraordinary at making everything around her so real and so funny. She just is that you can't take your eyes off her when she's on stage. She's so interesting all the time. And um, she's so different in life from the part that she played as Lisa's mother. She's had a variety of roles since then. She was in Wicked for a little while last year. She was in Anna Box's play, The Receptionist. She's doing this Paul Rudnick play right now um, at Lincoln Center. I mean, she is an utter chameleon, and she is the most generous, loving person. And to be able to work with her and Lisa and our incredible cast um, was really amazing. And then, of course, the play had this totally strange trajectory, which was that we premiered in New York, which is strange for a new play to just boom, like out of the out of the canon right onto the New York stage without any other production. And then it did really well. And then we worked on it for another six or seven months. And then we did it in San Francisco at ACT. And so it was like to, it was sort of the reverse of how things usually happen. And then the play came back into New York to go to Broadway after another year of work on it. And so it was um, 
you know, as un- the trajectory was as unconventional as the play itself, which was kind of fantastic. And the staging was a bit unconventional, too. As I recall, speaking of Jane yeah. Hattyshell as the mother, when the audience came into the Long Acre Theater, she was already on stage laying on the bed, and people in the audience were saying, is that a real woman in the bed? Yes. She was just laying like she was sleeping, motionless on the bed, for the entire half hour or so that the audience was milling around before the show actually started. Yeah. Was, was that your idea to do that? It was, yeah. You know, Jane, it's, Jane hated it so much when we first started to do it. I mean, she just hated it. And I made her do it in rehearsal. I made uh-huh. her do it when we were doing workshops. I made her just lay in that chair. And there was a way in which she came to love it so much because she would just go into this very deep meditative state. And the stage manager would just stand sort of off, just off stage and say, Jane, 15 minutes. And Jane <laughs> would sort of like breathe deeply, like so that we knew that she wasn't asleep, actually. <laughs> but um, she heard the most amazing things, you know, comments from the audience because people didn't know whether she was alive or like what was going on. And someone once said to the person that they were with, is that stuffed? <laughs> um, so I think she uh, she heard quite a bit, but she loved doing it. And it was, I felt like a really good way to start the show. Talking about the tra- trajectory of the show, the feeling when it was at the public in a very open, non-proscenium space was very different when it ended up on Broadway, where it was contained. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how the journey of the play and the places it played ultimately determined the shape of the play. That's a really interesting question. I mean, we always felt like the play would work best in a really strict formal proscenium. So we were eager to get to one um, Mm. because there's, uh, there's so much breaking down of convention that we felt like a strict formal theater setting would be the best home for it. And we uh, really worked. We we had to do a lot of work in the first 20 minutes of the play to, like, set up all of the devices that were then going to, like, fall apart, right? So you have to do all this work to sort of go, like, well, this is the way the play's supposed to go, and these are the way the things are supposed to happen, and then you spend the whole rest of the play breaking all of that down. Mm-hmm. And we felt like if we were in a very um, unconventional space that it would be harder to do those things. And if we were in a very conventional, strict proscenium space, it would be more fun to do those things. Mm -hmm. And so we actually really looked forward to and were excited by when we did it after the public and we did it at ACT in San Francisco. It was the first time we really did it in a very strict proscenium. The public is was proscenium, but it was um, the room at the public where we did the theater is not a, a traditional theater. Of course, none of the theaters at the public are. And we, we actually did it on the floor. We didn't have a stage. So there was a certain amount of work that we had to do to like, create that fourth wall. And then all of a sudden, we were at ACT in this gorgeous 1,200-seat, you know, proscenium. And it's like, that fourth wall is there. Like, you don't have to do any work there. And it's it was fun then to break it down. Also, you know, the play is all about making a big mess in a certain way. And... Um, the, the, the stage ends up being so trashed by the end of the show. And so there's a lot of fun in doing that in a space that's so gorgeous and pristine mm. as opposed to a space that has a little bit of chaos to it already. Well, inevitably, the kind of attention that that show received, a new play by a relatively little-known writer, one of the rare women directing a play on Broadway, presumably that bumped up the awareness of you and the things that you might be approached about. What what did well do for you career-wise? 
gosh, you know, it's so hard to answer question like question like that just because it's it's always hard to tell like where you are in the scheme of things. I think um, I, I I don't know. I always think I'm like five days away from starting to temp again or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's like this way in which I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I look around and I think um, it. I know it changed my life. Um, it certainly changed Jane's, Jane's life and it changed Lisa's life. And I think, um, I mean, I was saying Jane's doing the show at Lincoln Center right now. And I think, you know, she said to me the other day, I never even had an audition at Lincoln Center. She said she couldn't even get an audition. And now she's starring in a show there. And I think that is um, a really amazing thing. And I think, um, you know, certainly for me to be able to be directing the show at Manhattan Theater Club, to be able to be working with Julie White, to have the opportunities that I'm having, I think being called and asked to direct projects, the fact that I'm so busy, I think that's that's all, I, I guess, where the proof is. Well, well, because of well, did your phone start ringing more? Did people start coming to you? Or how, how do you find your projects? Did people come to you? Well, I'll tell you, after I did well, I got like... 14,000 plays about people and their mother. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, that, and then I was like, oh God, no more plays about people and their mother. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's, it plays come to me a number of different ways. I mean, I have a group of writers that I work with very consistently. Um, you know, certainly I'm working with Lisa on her new play, Tanya Barfield, whose play I directed Blue Door last year at Playwrights Horizons. We're doing the premiere of her play of equal measure at Center Theater Group this year. I have a sort of a, a, um, a really nice, I feel like, um, exciting and inspiring group of people that I like to work with. And then sometimes it, I'll get a project, you know, through my agent or through other people will call me artistic directors. Um, you know, Oscar Eustace called me two years ago and said, um, oh, I have the perfect project for you. This would be so great. And I said, really? What is it? And he said, it's David Henry Wong's new play. It's called Yellow Face. I think you'd be perfect for it. And I thought, what could this play be about that would be the perfect play for me? Like, what is it about this play, I wonder? Like, how am I getting pigeonholed? I really want to know. Father and son. <laughs> well, father and son, but also this kind of meta-theatrical, autobiographical play that deals with race and politics. And I thought, all right, well, that's a pretty good place to be pigeonholed. I'll take that. You know, stylistically adventurous, very challenging to do. And, um, you know, that was really great. I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I can't hope for more than that, than to have people who I respect and admire so much think of me and ask me to look at things and call me and it's funny you know when I went to meet with David um, after Oscar had called me we we had this meeting in which David asked me all these questions about yellow face and how I felt about it when I read it and I answered him and I felt like it was okay and then it turned out that he thought we had had like this terrible meeting and I had totally responded in ways that he hadn't expected and and then he, I guess, was like, no way, I'll never work with her. And then went home and like thought about it for a few days. And then he was like, oh, yeah, maybe she's on to something. And then mm-hmm. called me up and said, can we talk again? Because I'm intrigued by what you said. And, you know, and we had, an, you know, a really amazing collaboration. But, you know, it's like any first date, you know, you kind of go like, do you want the person who's going to challenge me a little? Or do you want the person who's going to tell me I'm great? How then did you come to Eve Ensler and the treatment? That's interesting. Eve um, was someone whose work I had admired so much. I mean, I think Eve is an incredible person in this world. I mean, what she does is so exciting and inspiring. And um, we actually have the same agent. Um, And she, uh, I guess, she had never seen anything I directed. Um, I think our agent called me and said, you know, Eve has this new play. Are you interested? The Culture Project was someplace I had really wanted to work. I really believe in them. I think they do really interesting stuff. And um, 
I was really intrigued. It was really a tough play. It was really asked a lot of hard questions, and I was really into it. I thought it was exciting. We should mention the play was called The Treatment. The Treatment, yeah. And it was about a treatment, obviously. Yeah, it was um, It was a series of sessions between um, a soldier who's come back from somewhere and a therapist assigned mm-hmm. to his case. But there had to be an interesting dynamic. We've, we've spoken about mothers and daughters, fathers and sons. Uh, Eve wrote the play for her adopted son, mm-hmm. Dylan McDermott. Mm-hmm. You're directing it. What is the dynamic when the playwright is the mom and the, the lead actor is the son? You know... It's so interesting. I, I feel like um, it's always just got to be about the work in a certain way. Like, And so when things get into dynamic, it's it was interesting, you know, on Yellowface, because David's wife, Catherine Lang, was in that play. Right. And, you know, there are times where things can devolve in a certain way. And certainly as the director, you're like, OK, I'm just going to step outside of this and I'm going to let them have their thing. And then at a certain point you say, OK, you know what? Like, we're going to take five. And when we come back, like the bullshit goes out of the room and like the work stays in the room. And I think that's really important, no matter if you're married to the person or related to the person or you've gigged birth to that person or whatever it is. I mean, I think at some point, I mean, the business is so incestuous anyway, that whether you're actually related to someone involved in the production, I don't know, but it's, um, it was, it was, I mean, they were fantastic and Eve only wanted the play to be good and Dylan only wanted the play to be good. And we all just, you know, I think it's just, it's always, it's always just gotta be about the play. After the treatment, you did uh, Blue Door, which was followed by Yellow Face, and then um, Hunting and Gathering. How did that come about? Hunting and Gathering was a play that I had worked with um, Brooke Berman on uh, for a couple of years. We had done some development work on it at Ars Nova, and um, Daryl Roth was very interested in the play. Uh, I think she was really excited by Brooke. Um, and Daryl and I had worked together on WID and have worked on a couple of other projects. Um, and she optioned the play, was going to produce it at her theater, and then um, formed an alliance with Primary Stages. And together they, they produced the play. And it was a play that I thought, again, very different from kind of the other stuff that I've worked on. Um, it was really... Um, I mean, it really speaks to the heart of people living in New York and trying to find an apartment and trying to, through the metaphor of real estate and apartment searching, you know, find themselves and find each other. And I I was very, I I found the play so sweet and so funny. And we just had an extraordinary uh, group of actors, Mamie Gummer and Kira Naughton and uh, Michael Chernus and Jeremy Seamus, all who um, just are so open and funny and flexible and creative and delightful. And we just had um, a lot of laughs. It was really fun. As looking at this uh, list of plays, is there, in your mind, a list of criteria that you have when you look at a work and you decide whether you want to direct or not? Are there things that you specifically say, I must be there, I must not? I mean, I like challenges. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, I like plays that are big, that speak to big issues. I like plays that are stylistically adventurous. Um, I like plays that are um, very personal, but about universal things. Um, I think that I like plays that I'm not sure that I know how to do them. I like plays that feel... Um, current, potent, exciting, maybe a little dangerous. You typically have done shows, directed shows that have been new work, 
directed by, uh, written by a living author. Mm-hmm. Would you consider doing revivals of older shows by a deceased author? <laughs> you know, have you ever considered that? Sure. I mean, I did this revival of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea at Second Stage, which... Um, uh, a couple of years ago, which was really great. I mean, certainly Shanley was around, John and so Patrick that Shanley was John is Patrick, still yes, alive, yes. he's still alive. But it was different in the sense mm-hmm. that we weren't changing things. And mm-hmm. um, I, I would of course do. I would love to do a revival. I, I, I think it would be really great. Uh, I can't even imagine it. I mean, I think in a certain way. Um, part of directing new work is that you have to sit day so nimble all the time because things are constantly shifting. So it's like you fix something later in the play, but the beginning of the play, it's like the ground keeps changing, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly we had the experience on Yellowface, which was that when we did the, the, the it was a co-production Yellowface between the Public Theater and Center Theater Group. And when we did the play out at the taper, um, David Corrins, who's the set designer and I, created this we had this idea for the set based on something in the play that by the time we got into rehearsal for the show in L.A., that idea had been taken out of the play. And so in a certain way, you go like, okay, what do we do with the set now? Like, how do we change it? What? How do we adapt it? How do you, you know, that every choice that you make has to be able to allow for the natural growth and progression and transformation of the project. And and I can't, you know, when I think about doing a revival and I think like, wow, the thing you start with is the thing you're, I, I mean, there's there's a, a whole different kind of groping around in the dark in a way. When you work on a new play, you have no idea what the end point is, none. When you work on a revival, you know what the end point is. It's just how to get there, how to map that that journey. Is there any older work that you would like to do? Oh, I there's. I would love to do. I mean, I'd love to do a Williams play. I'd love to do an Inge play. I'd love to do a Miller. I mean, I there's. I I would love to do a play by Lillian Hellman. I mean, I think that there's. Um, there's no. It's not that I'm not interested. It's mm-hmm. just somehow you know hasn't been where I've where I've been. In the space of 12 months, as I look at this, you'll have done Yellowface, Hunting and Gathering, Bebo Brinker twice, twice, from up here, and of equal measure. How do you balance and focus on each of these? John, very early on, used the word multitasking. It's not. It's the same task. You're directing all of them, but you're you're splitting your mind between all of these these different artistic impulses from different authors. Is... How do you manage to keep them all straight? <laughs> um, I don't sleep very much. <laughs> I have no social life, and I have an ulcer. Um, no, I, you know, um, I don't know. It's all I know how to do. I don't know how to do anything else. So I guess it's all, all my, you know, all my eggs are in this basket. I feel um, like it is tough. There are days where I think uh, my brain's not big enough. <laughs> And it's just, I can't hold it all in there somehow. But I feel like with a lot of these projects, because I developed them over a number of years, there's a familiarity to them that it doesn't all feel like a ton of new um, information or something to process all the time. And I think the real key for me is that when I'm, wherever I am, I'm really present in that moment. I can't, during my span of rehearsal day at Manhattan Theater Club, I cannot focus on anything else. I can only be in that room. Because once I open the door a little bit to another project or something else, it's like it's all over. But if I can really compartmentalize, really be really present at any point that I'm there, and then move to the next, and then be really present Mm -hmm. there, I feel like that is um, the only way to do it. Well, there's the cliche that if you want something done well, give the job to a busy person. Right. <laughs> does, does being busy, having all these irons in the fire, juggling all these things at one time, does that 
stimulate you? Do you think does that make absolutely? You- I mean, I I feel like the work absolutely helps the work. I, I I feel like you know because you have to make decisions, you have to be concise, you have to be right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that it requires a kind of um, muscularity and um, ability to stay focused and it forces you to be on your game all the time and you can't obsess over any one little thing right you mm-hmm. just have to go you know what that color's the best for the kitchen cabinet okay that costume that one's great this thing not so good okay let's rehearse okay here are the notes you know that there's a kind of a really razor sharp way of focusing that just has to happen and i love that i mean i really i thrive off of it in case you it's not obvious i mean that is the that is how i want to live before we wrap up, I just want to ask, can you tell us a little bit about From Up Here and Of Equal Measure, both new pieces, so don't know what they're about. Okay. Um, From Up Here is um, a new play by a woman named Liz Flahai. That's her first play. It's, um, it's on stage one at Manhattan Theater Club at City, over at City Center. Um, it's a play about a family grappling with an event that's just occurred, and um, it's two two teenagers and Julie plays their mother and Brian Hutchinson plays her husband and Aria Barekis plays her sister and we have a really exciting group ensemble. It's just a fantastic play. It's funny and irreverent and honest and poignant. I think it is one of the best depictions of an American family grappling that I've ever seen. It is such a thrilling play. It is just funny, funny, funny and Julie White is extraordinary and so moving. I mean, I just feel like it's a whole side of Julie that is um, just going to blow people's socks off. I'm so excited about it. Um, and Tanya Barfield's play of equal measure is uh, a very completely different, a big period epic piece about Woodrow Wilson's uh, presidency and the years from 1911 to uh, 1918 when we got into World War One. <laughs> From Up Here starts previews very soon, March 27th at Manhattan Theatre Club, and then uh, Of Equal Measure opens at Center Theatre Group when late June or early July, somewhere around there. Yeah, 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 late June. Late uh-huh. June. We, our official opening is July 10th, so. And then you, as you mentioned before, you have Coraline coming up next season at Manhattan Theatre Club. So at uh, MCC, Manhattan Class Company, MCC. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you've got a lot of multitasking in the future. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Don't let it stop. You, you won't <laughs> be tamping anytime soon. Well, thanks for multitasking the downstage center into your schedule yes, today. And Lee, thank thanks you. so much for being with us. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lee. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.